This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. The English mystic Marjorie Kemp led a remarkable life at a turbulent time from 1373 to 1438. After the birth of the first of her 14 children and again from her 40s and for the rest of her life, she had visions of Jesus Christ that were so intense she wept profusely to the amazement of many and annoyance of some. She felt the pain of the crucifixion and she imagined herself married to Christ living as man and wife. This was a time when England was on high alert for heretics, and Marjorie Kemp was threatened with burning at the stake, interrogated as she travelled from her home in Norfolk across the country by land and sea to Jerusalem, Rome, Norway, Poland, Germany and Santiago de Compostela. We only know of her life now because she dictated her story to scribes towards the end of her life. That book disappeared until the 1930s when it tumbled from a cupboard at a country house as guests were looking for a spare ping-pong ball. With me to discuss Marjorie Kemp and English mysticism are Miri Rubin, Professor of Medieval and Early Modern History at Queen Mary, University of London, Catherine Lewis, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Huddersfield, and Anthony Bale, Professor of Medieval Studies at Birkbeck University of London. Mary Rubin, what do we know about Marjorie Kemp's early life in King's Lynn? Marjorie was probably born around 1373. She's born to a very, very distinguished family in Lynn at the time. It was called Bishop's Lynn. Now, Lynn... uh, at the time, in the early 15th century, was a very, very important port. It was connected to a whole network of cities that were bound together around the Baltic and the Northern Sea, the Hanseatic League, so that the traders from all these cities had equal rights and moved within them very easily. So was her father, John Brunham, or Burnham, a major, major trader who was also elected to office. He served as coroner and juror and MP and five times as mayor as Lynn. So she really grew up in a very, very grand, well-to-do family. And as was normal in those circles, around 20, because in England, on the whole, women were a little bit uh, older than their counterparts, say, in Italy at the time, Uh, around 20, she married John Kemp. John Kemp, also from a merchant family, maybe, well, definitely not as distinguished as her own, but also part of the elite of this bustling city. And then uh, she gets pregnant soon after. And in that pregnancy, that first pregnancy, clearly she suffered a lot, both physically and personal, spiritual, mental anguish. And in the course of that, she has the first revisions of Christ. But, uh, and that's very helpful to her. But she goes on with her life and she has what 14 children. What is the vision children. she has? Uh, the vision is an extraordinary appearance to her of the second person of the Trinity that is Christ, the man, man and God, but very, very much a physical Christ who comforts her, who encourages her. And she's very much afraid that she's just admired in sin and that her pain is thus she a punishment. She also does, as I read, a massive scratching of herself. The scars remain Terrible, her. terrible. Yeah. A, 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 literally a scratching of herself that leaves scars for a lifetime, as she says. And really the description in the book 
of the anguish is extremely, extremely troubling and moving. But she still goes on and she has 14 children. Now, we don't know if these are 14 births or 14 children. If 14 live children, it may well have been more births than more actual births than that, given the given uh, um, a child mortality at the time. And then around middle age... Now, we know we're going to get to middle age yet. Um, okay. What was the position mm. of women in relation to the established church at this time? Okay, so a woman like Marjorie would have had a certain amount of numeracy and literacy just from being really part of a merchant environment and working in it. She would have had her religious education, partly at home, but then, of course, through the services of the very grand church of St. Margaret's. It was her church in which she went to regularly. That would mean partaking in the sacraments. That would mean access to confession. I mean, Roman Catholicism at that time was spectacular, extravagant, uh, impressive and meant to be, but also encouraging the domestic imitations of Christ. So what was woman's relationship with that church then? Well, a woman like her would have had, for example, her own book of prayer, as we know that Marguerite had. So she had, she was able to afford that sort of extra, as it were, help in her devotions as she went to church. She would have had the whole array of sacraments, as I said, but also in a city like Lynn that had so many preachers and religious and monks and friars, she would have heard quite a lot of really rather interesting preaching. And she says she learned a lot from that type of preaching. But as a woman, she had no actual place in the established hierarchy of the no church. No official place. Anthony Bale, what were the authorities, or why were the authorities on the lookout for heretics at this particular time? We're talking about the end of the 14th, beginning of the 15th century. Yes. Marjorie is accused of heresy at various points in her life. And this is really part of the playing out of the Wycliffeite heresies of the late 14th century. These were... Um, what we might now recognise as proto-Protestant or pre-Protestant heresies um, in, based on the thought of John Wycliffe, who was an Oxford theologian and cleric. Um, and uh, Wycliffe had, um, had developed a theological position um, which became known as Lollardy. Not in Wycliffe's time, it was... Um, it, it became much more a kind of spectral, unidentifiable um, movement called Lollardy, which is what Kemp is, is accused of in the 15th century. And Can you give us some examples of that? Because it came... Wycliffe was defended by John of Gaunt at mm-hmm. the time of the early uh, 1380, where he got out. He didn't write it, but he got out this first English, full English translation of the Bible, which was illegal. And he was when he was protected, it was okay. When he was uh, when he was show trial, put him in jail, and then finished off his life, he wasn't, especially after John of Gaunt. Um, but then they turned on the English Bible and everything else the Lollards developed. So can you give the listeners some things of what they were saying? Some of it is remarkably uh, contemporary. When you say proto-Protestant, let's go for it. What were they saying in the 1390s? Well, the distillation of what we might think of as Lollard thought arrives in 1395 in the 12 Lollard Conclusions, which are presented to Parliament and pinned on the doors of St Paul's Cathedral and Westminster Abbey. And these 12 Conclusions include statements such as worship of the bread and wine of the sacrament is a kind of idolatry, that confession to priests is illegitimate because only God has the right to to absolve human beings of sin, um, that um, clerical celibacy leads to sodomy, um, that um, uh, 
and, and that pilgrimage and devotion to relics is a kind of idolatry. And so these are... And that the Bible must be in English. Yes, and, and this is much more, I think, a move towards a congregational religion as opposed to a clerical religion and is therefore extremely hostile towards the established church and the clergy. And one of the particular points that the Wycliffeites make is that clerics should not have temporal um, offices or own land or have um, uh, temporal employment, um, that they should be busying themselves with the cure of souls rather than looking after um, the church as well. It's very much a, a more intellectual uh, view, point of view. Uh, uh, the same thing that John Ball was stirring up crowds b- before, about 20, 20, 15, 20 years yeah. before. So it's very much in the air, but they turned against it. The church is tightening its grip on all sorts of things, uh, including that the clergy should be chased and so on. What, so what was it like for ordinary people? These are the, They pinned them to the door. Maybe Luther got the idea then to, from that. They pinned them to the door... And do ordinary people go about their lives in a completely different way? Are they sniffing out lollards in their own villages? What's happening? Heresy is essentially a thought crime. It's a crime which exists in people's minds, in people's devotional selves. And so identifying it, finding it, um, actually involves a degree of surveillance and drilling down to what normal people are doing. And from the early 15th century... So by this point, 20 years or so after after Wycliffe, but in the early 15th century, you get this incredible culture of surveillance and censorship. Who's doing well, the surveillance? Well, it starts it starts off being the established church, and particularly Archbishop Arundel, um, who um, who is a very keen persecutor of Lollards. Um, and what we see in the Book of Marjorie Kemp is how this surveillance drills down to the level of. Um, both secular and ecclesiastical officers. So it could be a bishop, it could be a, uh, it could be a confessor, it could be the steward uh, or the mayor of Leicester. It's something which is being carried out across all different parts of society and across the country. And by that time it had become very serious because in 1401 a statute came out which was on the burning of heretics yes. and her- the first heretic was burnt then and on it went... Catherine Lewis, what kind of vision... Let's get back to Marjorie Kemp. What kind of visions did she have at first? So, as Mary's mentioned, the the very first vision actually happens just after, or about six months after she gave birth. And and as we were saying, it was a a very difficult experience for her. She was was physically ill, and then she had a lot of mental anguish over an unconfessed sin. Now, she never tells us what this sin was, and there's been lots of speculation about its nature. I I suspect it might have been some kind of sexual sin because she's absolutely preoccupied with sexuality and with the fact that she lost her virginity. And many times in the book she tells us she wished she'd never married and never had sex. So she goes to her confessor, she wants to confess this sin because she thinks she's going to die. And the confessor is very sharp with her and she can't get the sin out. And so then she goes into this frenzy and the first visions that she has are terrifying visions of demons, breathing fire and attacking her and and pulling her about. And this is when, as you were saying, she starts to self-harm because they're encouraging her to try and kill herself because then she'll go to hell and be damned. But then in the middle of all of this, just when it seems as though she really has lost her mind, 
Christ appears. And it's a wonderful vision. He appears, he's a very handsome man, he's clad in purple, and he just sits on the side of her bed and he says, daughter, why have you forsaken me when I never forsook you? And then he disappears elegantly, as Anthony says in his translation, off up into heaven again. And, and that's it. But it restores her senses again. It brings her back to herself. Um, but then nothing seems to then change in her life uh, for about another 15 years. She she has this very important vision, but she carries on living as she was. And having children. And having children, exactly, yes. And then she has another vision that, that we're, not so, we're not really sure of the dating, but... Well, let's wait for the next vision, okay. because I just want to go into the... the, the what you've mentioned, which is really important, mm-hmm. where did they come from? Because she did, <coughs> she was worried whether, even towards the end of her life, when she went to see Julian of Norwich, did they come from God or did they come from the devil? Well, she believed they came from God, but sometimes she very properly doubted this because even the most learned, the, the most well-educated theologian could have difficulty discerning the origins of a vision, discerning whether they had come from God or from the devil, let alone a woman. And this is what makes women's visions problematic because of all the stereotypical ideas about their intellectual and moral failings and this sense that they really would not be capable of discerning the origins of the vision. And so this is, why, this is one of the main themes of the book. Over and over again, Marjorie questions this. One of the key questions here is how seriously, uh, maybe that's the wrong word, let's use it anyway, how seriously do we take the word visions? Because lots of people have said since then, oh, she had this sort of breakdown, or it was this uh, post-birth crisis, or it was was that, or it was the other. Now we're going to come across many more visionaries. How would you explain the vision? At the the time, what what do you think was happening at the time? It's, it's It's very difficult to know what's happening. Well, all we can really go on is what she tells us. So she believes that she sees this. She believes that Christ physically appears to her and that he's, he's concrete. She says in other visions she touches him, she feels him. And yes, perhaps we might want to talk in modern terms about it being the product of some kind of mental illness or psychosis, but that's not how she sees it. When people in the book explain her visions as madness or as illness, the book is very clear that they are wrong and that these are visions that have come from God. Yes, and what's more interesting is that uh, what is equally interesting, sorry, not more, is that lots of uh, lots of other people believe it. And Mary yes. Rubin, there, it's a time of mystics. It's a time, and also of women mystics. They're in Northern Europe. Let's stick to Northern Europe. Um, who can you give us one or two instances, and how did the tradition grow in Northern Europe, and how has Marjorie part of it? Absolutely, yes. From about 1100, we really have quite a lot of texts. It begins in the 12th century with really nuns writing, say, like the famous Hildegard of Bingen, actually in charge of her writing project. She's she's a person who's able to do so. She has the intellectual skills. From the 13th century, we start finding women who aren't in in nunneries in cities uh, uh, or, or just living outside nunneries or outside religious houses, but also developing a spirituality that gets noticed. And then their visions are often taken down by priests who are fascinated by them. One such very important person is Marie of Wagny from the Diocese of Liège in Belgium of today, and a very, very major intellectual and church churchman, Jacques de Vitry, writes, about, writes down her visions. These are translated widely throughout Europe, and she's one of the people who clearly influenced, 200 years later, uh, Marjorie's own mental religious uh, world, particularly around the issue of crying as allowed, and also a person who had been married 
as Marie of Oigny had been, finding her way to a chaste marriage. But above all important, to my mind, is Bridget of Sweden, who felicitously, the year she dies in is the year we think Marjorie was born in, 1373. An extraordinary Swedish aristocrat who moves from marriage and bearing eight children to a life of chaste marriage and after the death of her husband, pilgrimage throughout Europe. Marjorie mentions her, Marjorie's inspired by her, and particularly by her Marian devotion, her devotion to the Virgin Mary. And sort of competes with her, really. Indeed. Yes. Anthony, um, we know um, Marjorie Kemp's life from the book of Marjorie Kemp, apparently dictated in the last two or three years of her life in two books. Can you give us some idea of that book? Or a total idea? Well, the... (laughs) The book, um, by its own account, has a very difficult passage into existence. She asks somebody to write it down for her, and the person she first asks um, is a man who has lived in Prussia for some time and is almost certainly her oldest son. It doesn't say it's her oldest son in the book, but we can extrapolate from this that it was almost certainly her oldest son. And he tries to write down um, a version of her life and when it's then read, it turns out to be so evilly written, so ill-written, that nobody can understand it. Who, so who uses the word evilly? The, the book that's... The, the, the text that we now have um, says that you know, this is so misshapen in, in Deutsch letters, in German letters. Um, and then the book is given to another man who was, had been a friend of this man from Prussia, and he can't understand it either. It's then given to a priest um, who tries to read it and can't do anything with it, and then... Somewhat later, miraculously, this priest is able to um, work on it. And so the text sets itself up um, from the very beginning. It's having a very difficult relationship with its own self. And it makes clear that it's written out of order and that that there's several different amanuenses and scribes involved in the production of the text. The actual manuscript that we have today, which is held by the... I think before we go there, how reliable do you think it is? Do you think she did write, stroke, dictated... Um, I personally see no reason to disbelieve the text's own account of collaborative authorship because that's very much in keeping with how medieval texts are written, that people would have a listener, a reader, a writer, a scribe, and these were all part of what it was to be an author in the Middle Ages. Um, In terms of how reliable it is, this is not an impartial document. This book is designed to show Kemp in a particular way. It's modelled on sacred precursors, particularly Bridget of Sweden and Marie Douanyi, um, and it looks like a saint's life in some ways. It looks like a confession in other ways. Um, and, of course, one of the famous um, kind of generic tags that's given to it is it's the first autobiography in the English language. And to some extent that's true. It's the story of Kemp's life, but it's not the whole story. It's very interesting to us as a historical document, but it's also a work of rhetoric and has... Um, an ambivalent relationship with the whole truth. That's, that's the case with so many medieval documents. You just have to take a deep breath and say, well, we'll go with it. That's what we've got. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, we've got, a lot. Uh, yeah, yes. well, it's 9.20, we're going with it, and we're going <laughs> to keep going with it for the rest of the process. But it does seem, who else would have written the story of Marjorie Kemp, or, uh, except Marjorie Kemp and so on, and her son? Uh, and the, the evidence is as near conclusive as damn it. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. OK, Catherine... Um, we 
You, we, she has this vision when she's in her early 20s, when she had her first child. We don't hear m- much more about visions until quite a few years later uh, when they come on. Was this after her first great uh, uh, pilgrimage to, and this, to Jerusalem and to Calvary and so on? Was it did the, the visions and the conversations with Christ and that come on then? No, they, you, they start before they then start and before actually then, the, yeah. the, the pilgrimages come out of the visions, in fact. So, um, so yeah, it's about 15 years later and and I mentioned that the first vision of Christ that she has, it's a very brief encounter. So he appears and sits on her bed and um, restores her to herself. But then about 15 years later, it's, a, it's more of a, I suppose, an auditory experience because this is when the conversations with Christ start. And I think he's in chapter five of the book. So it's, it's early on, even though we, we know it didn't happen until later. And this is where Christ, for the first time, tells her, he reassures her again about this sin. And he tells her that she is saved. Essentially, he has now forgiven all of her sins. She will never go to hell she'll never go to purgatory even does she actually quote him in her book it, it's direct speech right. from Christ, yes. Okay. So she says that she, she hears him, he ravishes her soul, and then you get direct speech of, of Christ speaking to her. And this is where he also starts outlining for her aspects of what go on to be her, her vocation, what we might describe as her, the, the public ministry she creates for herself, essentially. And so, um, and really importantly, one of the things that he says as part of this is that she's to go and see a local anchorite. And again, it comes back to this issue of... Um, discernment of spirits and the local anchorite will be able to reassure her and indeed when he hears about the revelations that she's already had he's moved to tears by them and and says that she's sucking at the the breast of Christ essentially and again importantly he also says to her come back and tell me every time you have another vision and I'll be able to help you I'll be able to reassure you about their origins. So she made an agreement well I don't know how much he agreed because he he grumbled later or did more than grumble anyway she made a deal with her husband that there'll be no sex Therefore, mm-hmm. she'll be chased from then on, mm-hmm. and she would eat no meat. And this, this is somehow part of it. Um, uh, you said you used the phrase she was creating her own public ministry. What do you mean? The sense that she she must go around. She, she, she travels around the country, and she must tell people of her visions. And in particular, one of the things that Christ talks to her about. He, she says to him at one point, why, why haven't you shown these visions to professional religious, essentially, to clerics? And Christ talks about the fact that a lot of sin hides under the, the, the habits of holiness. And so she is essentially going out to correct what she sees as problems. And this is where she gets in trouble, because she is preaching. Yes. And women are not allowed to preach then, although the Lollards, one of the many radical things they were proposing, that women could preach. Mary, you come in, Anthony. Uh, well, I, I was just going to pick up that point about that's where she's on really dangerous ground. And it's something that she has to make very clear that she's not preaching. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's, it's forbidden by St Paul for women to preach and it's forbidden in the medieval church. And she makes that very clear that she's not preaching. But she does, particularly when she's at the Archbishop of York's house, so the Bishop of York's house, she, she in, in Kaywood, she is... Is it's very clear that she is effectively preaching. She's telling a, a, a parable and she's on she's she's put getting herself in very dangerous territory there. Mary, can I switch to Jerusalem? She made oh, a great yes. she made a great uh, <laughs> pilgrimage to Jerusalem. <clears throat> uh, pilgrimages were another thing the Lollards didn't uh, believe in, so she was on the, the side of the establishment in that one. Um, and that seems to be had a, <clears throat> when she was about forty. That seems to have had a seismic effect on her life. That is quite extraordinary, and it follows this sort of midlife change of life that 
we've mentioned in bits, getting out as it were of this framework of marriage for long periods of time, uh, obviously receiving a sort of blessing and agreement of her husband, which she would have been required to have in order to travel in this manner, and uh, also becoming the ultimate pilgrim and in poverty and in suffering. And even the way to Jerusalem is a martyrdom of sorts as she's being mocked and she's being abandoned and so on. But she reaches Jerusalem. Sorry. You say she... You also said she travels alone. She was a rich woman. Did she not even have a servant or was she alone alone? She had a servant and then mm. she's forsaken by her servant. So it's a series of absolute trials and also finding people to travel with. Everyone travelled in groups in the Middle Ages. Groups was safety. And uh, that's clearly a problem. She joins groups and then the groups find her irksome because she does go about, in a way, correcting people, preaching. Well, maybe not preaching, but constantly in vain. When people want to settle down and have a good time, you know, like the Canterbury pilgrims of Chaucer, in a way. And she's always there reminding them, don't, don't, don't mention God's, God's name in vain or don't behave this way or the other. But when she reaches Jerusalem, everything comes together in the most extraordinary fashion. And remember that Jerusalem at this time is under Mameluk, under Muslim control. But nonetheless, Christians have access to the holy places. The Franciscans have created, in a way, a trail of pilgrimage that allows people to really walk in the footsteps of Christ, the Via Dolorosa. And you can imagine for a woman who's been communicating for some years now regularly with Christ what this means. And she says to actually be in the place where his infancy was, where his suffering was, it's just absolutely Extraordinary. Well, she goes to Bethlehem as well. She is goes it, to Bethlehem is, is, as well. Is yes. it there that she gets what is called, and Joan of Arc had it as well, the gift of weeping? It, no, that happens already in Calvary, in Jerusalem, in the place of That's the right, crucifixion. Cal- on this trip, as yeah. you can imagine, yes, totally on, in this trip. And it really is quite extraordinary. What greater immediacy can you imagine? But also imagine that the Franciscans are very, very good with their own brand of effective piety, of working people up. You know, there's a leader, like a tourist leader today, leading with the cross, preaching, the sounds, the cries, people crawling on the ground. Still in Jerusalem on Holy Week, you can see that. So uh, this is all, everything comes together in terms of her very intimate contact in Christ. And as you say, the weeping, the weeping that then will stay with her her whole life, an extraordinary form of expression, but also in a way acting as a channel for some sort of divine inspiration in her mind. And annoying and impressing people in almost equal measure, Anthony Bale. Uh, And that's partly why she, we are told, she wasn't too popular with her fellow pilgrims. Yes. On her major pilgrimage to Jerusalem in uh, 1413 to 14, she, as Mary says, she, she is effectively ejected from the pilgrimage group that she's travelling with. Well, we forgot with. to say she dressed in white all the time. She annoyed people as well, given that she was married and had 14 yes. children. She dressed in white, which was certainly a, a sign of purity and probably virginity. That So she's she's adopting a persona of a virgin um, with 14 children. And she um, is repeatedly bullied on her way to, to Jerusalem. And I think... I mean, the th- she, one of the most symbolic things that the pilgrims do is refuse to eat with her and they sit her at the end of the table, they don't speak to her and to eject her from this kind of commensality, this eating together, which is the corporate body of the, of the, of the Christian group, is very, very um, painful to her. They also, she says, they steal her money, they dress her in a ridiculous um, kind of 
cloak made out of badger fur, um, and and her maidservant abandons her. And they cut down. Her, they cut her dress. So it's yeah. like a really mini skirt. Sort yes. Of thing. So she, she's made to look like a fool, um, and also she's made to look. Um, Poor and and that then becomes a persona that she she adopts. Um, I think one of the things that we have to bear in mind with this account of her persecution is that this authorizes in her in a way. This is her via crucis. She is like Christ. She's got a gift which not not everyone believes. She needs to prove herself through at the ordeal. Of, in other of, words, the more she's mocked, the more she believes her faith is right. She absolutely says that, yes. Mm. I mean, and she, in fact, she has Jesus say that to her. Um, so the, 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 the being a renegade, being someone who sees the truth which others don't see, then becomes a very authorising position for her. She's been a remarkably strong woman, mustn't she? I mean, not only the travelling and, and being abandoned by a but being, being e- exiled, as it were, from the table in the evening, being mocked by, uh, by her fellow pilgrims. Extraordinary. What, what, what did the authorities think of her? She travelled around, because she did pilgrimages in England to York, Walsingham, the obvious places, and took them on wherever she went, it seems to me. There's, a, there's an encounter with uh, the Mayor of Leicester, isn't there, where she, he has a go at her and she has a go back at him. He really wants to imprison her or even uh, put her on trial. Can you yes, talk well about they, that? That's right, yes. So um, in Leicester, she is actually more or less formally tried for Lollardy and she's examined as to her opinion on the Articles of the Faith. And they're, they're hoping to try and catch her out. They, they focus on the, the, um, the mass, essentially, and get her opinion on the true presence in the mass. But interestingly, it, it's not just the, the perception that she might be a heretic. Uh, one comment that the mayor of Leicester makes to her, and it relates to her white clothing, is that he, he asks her why she goes about in white, and then he says to her, I think you've come to lead all our wives away. And there is this, this fear that she is setting a very subversive example, because, yes, she's still married, but she's taken a vow of chastity, and her husband has authorised her pilgrimage, but he's not there. And she's essentially, she's earning a living for herself as a holy woman. She has a purse of money that she carries around with her. The Archbishop, the Bishop of York, rather, asks her where she gets the money from. And she says, well, people pay for me to pray for them. So this is, I think, something that's worrying, something that's challenging, and that she might encourage other wives to do the same. And intriguingly, she also, um, she comes under the attention of the most powerful man in England at the time, and that's John, Duke of Bedford, who's governing England in the absence of Henry V. And again, he's obviously concerned about her in relation to Lollardy, because there's just been Old Castle's revolt, um, the the famous uh, Lollard Lord, and he's actually on the run at this point. This is 1417. And so he sends his men to arrest her and they say they're going to get a reward of £100 for arresting her, which is, yes, it's a lot of money. So the Duke of Bedford is worried about her. But again, there's an interesting more personal sideline onto that because we also discover that Marjorie Kemp had been in the household of the Duke of Bedford's aunt, and that's Joan Beaufort. And allegedly she had counselled Joan Beaufort's daughter to leave her husband. And so again, you've got that same motif that Marjorie is setting a very bad example. She denies it, but that's what she's accused of. Mary? That's a really important point because a lot of the scholarship and general interest in her has been as somebody who was persecuted by authorities. But in fact, almost in every city where she was examined by the authorities, you find people who take her in. You find people who give her lavish table. And, you know, she enjoyed her food. 
She loved sitting at table and talking. So there is this way in which the population, in the population, there were those who were open to her example. Because what was going on at the time, I mean, you keep, I mean I'm reading a lot about Charles. Anyway, Charles, is the idea that, that women could be brides of Christ. Now, this was encouraged by the church. You, not only the, the nuns, you are a bride of Christ. Now, it doesn't, it isn't a big step to say, OK, therefore he is my husband. Uh, and she said, she, well, she has she, a ring. She, she has, has a ring. ring. Given her. So, well, how, so maybe the popular sympathy for us to do with well, a lot of us wish to be brides of Christ, and you have, as it were, made it, and that's, we want to know about your experience. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. But the thing is that you can be a bride of Christ if you're in a monastery, even if you're in an anchor hold like Julian of Norwich, that's fine. You're not a danger. The thing about her is that she's abroad, and she's visible, and she's audible. Some hate her. Some absolutely admire her. And and there is a sort of Christian communality that develops around her amongst her followers. She goes to visit Julian of Norwich, this strange, not strange woman, this extraordinary woman. Uh, strange too. Strange who wrote and some a reputation, <coughs> unlike Marjorie's, endures strongly to this day. Uh, the uh, former Bishop of Oxford uh, uh, thinks very highly of and so on and so forth. So was she going to the Julian Norwich to confirm her own position or... Tell us why you think she went. For all that Marjorie is so strong and opinionated, she's very open to hear good advice. She often goes and asks, we already heard about going to the hermit. And and so she goes early in her career, that in that middle age moment, she goes to Julian, in who Norwich. is in Norwich, in the church, in Anchoress at St. Julian's Church, to ask for advice and discernment. And they stay together for days together and this, discuss all of that. Now, Julian herself had already committed her first visions, which she got as a young woman, uh, a young sick woman in her 30s, and she, and she had written down around 1373. And then she had written them again, interestingly, after a life of reflection. But there was never any question. I don't think that people really knew very much about these writings. I think scholars know about them now. I don't think Julian of Norwich at the time was known for her visions. She was known for her exemplary life. So she's a sort of person exactly, and particularly being a woman, how attractive to see someone who would really, really understand. And they go and they spend quality time together. This is clearly a very important encounter for Marjorie in terms of someone to talk to. Anthony, uh, Anthony Bell, in, she made many pilgrimages. We talk about her going to Rome, to Assisi. We talked about her going to Norway. Uh, uh, well, we, haven't, we, aren't, we aren't talking about her going that more, more, more accurately. Anyway, she did. Uh, and then towards the... Uh, when she was 60 or something, she sets off for Gdansk. Yes. Why is that? This is a really remarkable um, moment in the book, and it really provides the kind of formal end of the book where after the pilgrimage to Jerusalem as a woman of about 40 is the kind of spiritual high point the journey to Poland and then Germany is the kind of the end journey of the, of, of the book and the book Can says we that she... Can clarify these journeys a little bit because we haven't, I mean she sometimes is walking she sometimes is on a cart yeah. uh, she wasn't using her wealth from King's Lynn as it all Bishop's Lynn as it was then called to get her there the easy way Well in fact it's, it's clear in the book that she gives money away to make the pilgrimage is more difficult and that she then gets more money from supporters, which she then repeatedly gives away. That's very clear on her journey to Santiago. But she sets off for uh, um, Gdansk um, as actually a renegade. She is accompanying her daughter-in-law, who was from, um, from Gdansk, uh, to Ipswich. And she, this is after her son had died, and she was going to put her daughter-in-law um, on a boat 
um, to send her back to her own family in, 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 in Prussia. And then Kemp, who's been told not to go, she then gets on the boat and she goes off to, off to um, the Baltic. The boat is blown off course and go, ends up in Norway over Easter. Um, and then they make their way to Gdansk. And then she undertakes an incredible journey. This is a woman in her 60s who has a bad foot. She says she's injured her foot. And she walks something like 800 to 1,000 miles, partly on wagons, partly on foot, um, from um, from she gets, takes a boat from Gdansk to Straussund and then she goes to the see the Holy Blood and the Holy Eucharist at Vilsnack, which was a famous pilgrimage location, and then she goes on to Aachen and then to Calais and then back home as a as a woman who is really struggling. The text is very detailed about how difficult this journey was. Do you think, Mary Mary Rubin, that her experience was seen at the time? She thought of herself to be a mystic. She had no doubt about her belief. The more it was mocked, the stronger it was. And the visions were clear and they were transparent. He came, he said that, I was there. And they're rather domestic. He's sitting on the edge of the bed and that sort of thing. And they're always sexual either in one way or another. Um, do you think that people saw it as an enrichment of the life of the general community of how you lived or an enrichment of her life? Do you think that people thought that she was doing it this was all to her benefit? Some people thought she was instrumental, that she was a hypocrite who wanted to draw attention to herself. But as many, I would have thought, found her exemplary. And uh, the fact that she got so much patronage, she got so many offerings, people at least thought she might be a prophetess. Let's ask her an important question like, uh, when might I die or when might a relative die and so on. And that's why the constant stream of patronage and support. But the thing is, her story also fits into the biblical story. And indeed, the book of Marjorie Kemp is full of citations from the Bible, obviously in the Middle English mostly, of uh, of suffering, of prophecy, a lot from the Hebrew from the Hebrew prophets. She's also building, really importantly, on the deep carnality of the religion of incarnation. The body is a vehicle. Christ offered his body after all. So in a lot of ways, she's just making something quite unique. And being a woman, it's troublesome out of the bits and pieces, the material, the resources of Christianity. And in that sense, it was possible for many to appreciate her, including very respectable monks in the course of the 15th century who wanted to have a copy of her book, and that is our sole surviving manuscript. Catherine, can you see a plan in what she's doing? She goes to all these places, massive travelling, and in this country, uh, and she gives money away and gets... Is there a plan? Can you say she did this because of that? I think I think she did it because she she was compelled to do it by Christ essentially and again this this sense of mission but I think there is also she's very aware of these these other female mystics and there is a sense in which there's a very much an awareness of a future reputation for holiness as well. And what's really fascinating, of course, is that in all the lists that Mary told us about, there is no English counterpart, with the exception of Julian of Norwich, who wasn't known as a visionary at the time. So I think one of the things that we've got going on here, perhaps, is an attempt collaboratively with Kemp and her scribe to provide the English answer, if you like, to Bridget of Sweden, to provide a homegrown manifestation of holiness within that urban setting. It has been suggested this this was her attempt to, to turn her into a saint. 
This was her attempt to turn herself into a saint. Yes, but I'm only, head from Mary. Uh, yeah, I, only in only in the broadest sense. It's not. This would not be a document that you'd prevent, present for canonisation, for example. That would be a, a Latin document, a very different kind of document. Anthony, so the book is written, dictated, whatever it is, and then copied. What influ- What do we know of its influence? Well, that's a really good question. We know that the manuscript that we have was held by the Carthusian Monastery of Mount Grace in Yorkshire in the late 15th, early 16th century. And there we know that Carthusian monks were reading it very sincerely, very piously, as evidence of devotional practices. We can t- yes, and we can tell from their marginalia that they are saying that, that, that they're taking the spiritual message from it. Um, and then in um, around 1500, and then again in 1521, um, early printed um, versions of the Book of Marjorie Kemp are produced. They are very, very heavily edited, almost censored. They take most of her life out and they just give us a few bits of her visions. And they call her a devout anchoress of Lynn, which she wasn't. She wasn't an anchoress, someone who's withdrawn. She was someone very much in the world. Um, and so her reputation does endure, but in a quite small way. She certainly wasn't made a saint. She certainly didn't become a saint. And then really between the English Reformation in the 16th century and 1934, she more or less disappears. And Do you have an explanation for that? I think in the harsh terms of hagiography, she, the cult fails, that she doesn't, isn't made a saint, but also because she's exactly the kind of figure who is so... Um, much connected to the old religion, that she's very... Um, this is something that Protestants would have been very hostile towards. Her faith in the sacrament, her faith, faith in pilgrimage, um, her love of indulgences. These are things which were, you know, really not appreciated by um, the, the Church of England. If we simplify it and talk of two sides, a great Roman Catholic establishment, spectacular, theatrical, in control, all-pervasive, and the Protestants starting with the law, let's say starting with the law, mm-hmm. uh, she offended both. You're nodding, Mary. She certainly wasn't a lollard, but she, she has... She, strikes some poses which make people think she might be, and, yes, she, is, she, she speaks truth to power. That's one of her things. Well, what's fascinating in the when when it is discovered in the 1930s and is, is then published both in modern English and in Middle English, what's fascinating is that Catholics like Graham Greene are enthusiastic about it, as well as of course just the Church of England, because for Catholics she talks about the old religion, and for English she's just an, for, for for Anglicans she's just a wonderfully colourful English religious character. And she's all over the front pages of the TLS and so on. There's a great enthusiasm about her when she's rediscovered. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Mary Rubin, Catherine Lewis and Anthony Bale. Next week, we'll talk about penicillin, discovered by Sir Alexander Fleming in 1928. You can follow us, I'm told, on Twitter and BBC In Our Time. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. So what did we miss out that was important? But what Melvin, did... one of our wonderful colleagues, David Wallace, um, has just gone into the whole history of the actual reception in '34, and then during the war, because the translation is, is published and, and the edition in 1940, and she becomes almost a counterpart to... Joan of Arc. They have La Pucelle. We have extraordinary, resilient, tough eccentrics like Marjorie Kemp was the idea. Catherine, what do you think? I would have liked to say more about her husband and her son, I think. Um, Why about her husband? He's he's a very interesting character and I think he is very 
he is very forbearing in many ways. Um, he, albeit that when they're in Canterbury together, apparently um, her, she's embarrassing him so much that he pretends he doesn't know her and, and, and sort of leaves her alone. But I think actually... The fate of many husbands. Well... <laughs> But I think actually the relationship that they have is is very interesting. And so, for example, when she first says to him that she wants to have live chaste, he says, like St. Augustine, he says, well, that's a really good idea, but just not yet. <laughs> um, but yet he does enable her to follow that lifestyle. And later on in life, when he has this terrible accident and he, he gets this, this brain damage and she has to look after him, he's, he's infantilised at this point. And she says she doesn't want to look after him. But Christ reminds her that really her husband has enabled her to follow the vocation because he was prepared to let her live this this different form of life. So yes, I would like to. And also points out, she points out that they'd had so much enjoyment of each other's bodies when they were young that it was now fitting that she should look after him Mm. when he's um, fouling his own linen by the by the fireplace and at table. And and this is, I think, in English writing, this is unique Mm. to have a portrait of old people in their marriage. This domesticity, which is, and actually, I find this part of the book very, very moving um, he's, he's fallen down the stairs and she's looking after oh. him and this is something which it's a portrait of I wish we got yeah. that in actually that yeah. was good that's yeah. good because no, usually there is a certain type of criticism that makes him into a sort of villain yes you know exactly. she maybe would have wanted to start her chaste life earlier mm. but he you know they produced 14 children and so on but so it's it's quite interesting to see because marriage is also a framework of respectability. Mm-hmm. It's a household. It's a safe haven. But that's one of the things which is so amazing about the book for us that it's so full and that people mm. come back to it and find every time I read it, I find yeah. something Absolutely. new. Yeah. Apart from anything else, it gives us an awful lot about medieval England, doesn't it? Medieval mm. history yeah. and the women at the time. Yeah. Mm. You know, when Virginia Woolf writes in a room of one's own, ah, oh, if only some historian here in Girton would write a book about, say, a Tudor woman, just a normal woman. <laughs> to me, <laughs> this is the book. There are more than 700 programmes to download and listen to for free from the In Our Time website, where you'll also find a reading list for this episode.